G'day. My name's David Joe Hinkey. I'm president of the National Farmers Federation, and today I'm talking with episode three, Matt and Andrew. Oh, well, I, I, I don't want to criticise, but technically it's not episode three. <laughs> technically it's a separate entity. We know those guys at episode three, but this is actually the Ag Watchers podcast. <laughs> Uh, it's oh. an easy, it's an easy mistake to make, though, Andrew. A lot of people, a lot. We've actually, that's not the first time this week that the podcast has been confused for episode three. So, mm, I, we'll have to meet up with those guys and see what they like. I've heard they're smart guys. We should get them on the podcast. <laughs> I hear, hear they do good musicals. Yeah. They do. We'll, yeah, we'll they're get, very talented. We'll get them on one day. Uh, complaints, criticisms, and comments. Have we had any? Well, we've had a few podcasts. We just well, I guess it's a criticism from Martin Murray, wasn't it? Martin Murray um, said that, we're doing too many. We're doing too many podcasts, and he's probably right because we haven't got enough time between the last one and this one to have any complaints and criticisms come through, other than Martin's one. There we go. We'll, we'll accept yeah. that. We'll accept that less as a complaint or a criticism, more a uh, point of order. But when we've got when we've got you know good quality guests like DJ to get on, you know, we, last time we had you on, you was before you were announced uh, president now you are so we thought so, we'd get you back and see how how it's bef- going before we before we get into the the sixth sense and then into the general conversation uh i want to dispel some rumors as well about the mm. previous podcast there was a lot of talk that the reason why uh dj became the president was pretty much down to his attendance on the the podcast mm-hmm. um look that may be true. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny, but I have heard that from a number of people that the number of organisations that voted for David based on him coming on the podcast. Uh, that may be true. They may not. Because uh, we'll might never know. Maybe it's something you just made up now. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, take, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a simple thank you. I thought you guys were analysts and you'd know information. Um, about how to uh, make it work in your favour. How to manipulate votes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, All right, let's get it, let's get into it. Right, six cents. Uh, for for new listeners, we're going to uh, test uh, DJ's uh, competency, uh, his mental fortitude uh, through a series of uh, computer-driven AI algorithm-generated questions or statements. We'll give him a word or a statement, and he comes back with the first thing to mind. Then we will assess whether he's competent, A, to continue with the podcast, and B, to continue in his position as president of the National Farmers Federation. So no pressure at all. Matthew? All right, I'll start with Murray Watt. Egg Minister. Oh, come on. Gives a bit more. That's a good straight bat. <laughs> straight bat. Keep farmers farming. Great t-shirt. It is a very soft cotton t-shirt, actually. Just out of context, uh, Andrew's actually wearing one today. Uh, I love farmers <laughs> t-shirt, which um, for us is look. It's obviously that outward-looking commercial face, but I'd say customers. If that was my second uh, option, there, Andrew. Okay. Very good. Best. Australian band. Oh. Uh, we have to go for Aussie Crawl. Cost of living crisis. Shamozzle. The the 
live export boat that's off the coast of WA presently. Pronounce it, Matt. Come on. No, I don't know how to say the name of it. Indecision. Relationship between farmers and government in Australia. Less than ideal. A lot to talk about here, isn't there? Hopefully you've got <laughs> lots of time, DJ. Is that yeah. lots of six? Yeah, that's it. That's six, okay. Mm-hmm. Right, well, well, I guess we'll get into it. We'll start off. It's been three months since we helped you become the president <laughs> of the NFF. Um, how's it gone? What's been the, what's been the big, uh, big things? Well, we've obviously kept rolling with um, a lot of our agenda around the $100 billion farm gate value of agriculture. But I guess we've been a little bit more pertinent on what we're calling the Keep Farmers Farming campaign, which is just really highlighting policies that we've had issues with for a period of time and really elevating them to the level of um, being extremely vocal and getting more support publicly around, well, why are these issues important to agriculture and how do they affect consumers? And for us, I guess, uh, lately it's been things like the supermarket inquiry that's really highlighted a lot of frustrations around the supply chain, both farmers doing their job, but then also getting food along that supply chain to the consumers. And that frustration is obviously based around economics of farming, but then also the the value that consumers are actually receiving as well. So um, that combined with, I guess, uh, drinking from a fire hydrant, which it's felt like the first um, little period that I've had the opportunity to be in the role, um, it has actually re-emphasised that uh, the NFF is there for the whole of agriculture, for farmers on the ground, and hopefully people listening to this podcast has actually felt that that we are speaking up on the important issues. We always have, but probably at the moment we're a bit more poignant on some of these key issues. That, um, that point you made, before we go into some of the policy stuff there you, you mentioned, just in terms of that, because you were vice president before becoming president, so you, know, you kind of saw what the role entailed, and but you did still say that it was just about drinking from a fire hydrant was the, was the phrase you used going from vice president to president. What, what have been the main kind of challenges in that stepping up to that kind of key role? Oh, look, um, in, in any of these leadership roles, uh, people want everything from you um, and basically immediately, um, and that's, that's from your constituents as well as from uh, different organisations within the agricultural family to, to try to give them or their issues uh, prominence and um, just trying to get that harmony between making yourself available, make, making sure that you've, you're have you over the policy, but then also um, framing that policy in the right way. Because uh, it's very easy to say one or two comments and um, not actually back it up with, with the action or back it up with the evidence. And that's one thing we, we do take our time to make sure that evidence is in place. So um, I'm very fortunate we've got a good team to to provide me with that. Um, I'm basically the front person for a whole army of volunteers that put their time towards committees, and that's a very arduous process in itself, but that actually gives us um, real weight when we weigh into a debate that we've done our homework and we can actually speak with authority on that issue, both at the frustration of the farmer but hopefully then some evidence of pathways forward. And we have in every scenario put forward a, a better option or what we consider an alternative option to the current course. So so when you David, when you when you took over the reins in October, uh 
at the same time as taking over, you also launched that campaign, which was quite quite pointed towards the government and, and Murray Watt and about keeping farmers farming. What was what was the the sort of the the driving force behind being a bit more forward and a bit more forthright as opposed to sort of what had been done the previous sort of year or so? Well, we, we still want to have a really good relationship with government. Let, let me make that out at the front mm. here. Like when um, Murray is a very good listener, he's he's been really engaged as far as ag ministers go, but it's actually the cabinet that make those, those bigger decisions. And a lot of our issues are across departmentals and across portfolios that we really need action on. So it's not just pointed at agriculture. And I don't want to single out Murray Watt at all in this conversation yeah. because our, our, we have the frustration from agriculture is not based purely around the agricultural portfolio. And we have had some really good traction within agriculture itself. So credit where credit's due, um, especially when we spoke around um, the negotiation with the European Union and uh, Minister Farrell and Minister Watt getting together and actually backing in agriculture because we were the last domino that didn't fit and so therefore they didn't um, get a trade agreement which would have been very easy for them to sign and, and leave us hang out so credit with credit due so they they have been um, listening but it's the issues that go beyond that where we we said look we've told you about this for uh, a very long time it's a, a new broom coming in so let's be very forthright in making sure that they hear the conversation that it's not just noise and I, I believe Pretty well every um, minister that we've gone to post the launch of the Keep Farmers Farming campaign have mentioned that without prompting them. So they're, they're very aware of our key issues. Now we're just trying to keep promoting, well, what are the options that they have? They've, they're aware of the issue now. How can they resolve uh, issues around trade if it's live export? How can they make sure that we're getting better um, competition laws when we talk about supermarkets and then there's some policies that have come up since such as the emissions for um, the future purchase of vehicles that are going to affect agriculture putting forward why is that an, an issue for agriculture and, and trying to find a way through both the, the manufacturers and then the government's aspirations of where is some middle ground that we can work on so it hasn't been just a megaphone exercise, although it may feel like that from the outside, but inside we have been trying to make sure the policy has a neat fit with uh, getting an outcome. That's a, a salient point you make, though, that like Murray Watt might have his own views as Ag Minister and, and be pushing a certain agenda when they're negotiating within and, Cabinet. But and, at, and at the end of the day... we can discuss that with Murray Watt when he it, replies to their emails. Yeah, if I, he decides to come <laughs> back. But within Cabinet, the decision's made and it may be the type of decision that Murray favoured or didn't, but he, as a as a member of the parliament and cabinet, he's got to he's got to go with the majority in that space, right? So he might be still behind the scenes um, trying to push for what we would like, but doesn't always work out the way he wants it either. Exactly, that's the part. This is the art of um, advocacy. This is the art of understanding policy. Is that it's not just the minister you're talking to; it's the cabinet when you get these big decisions that are made by government as a whole. If it's just a ministerial one of how do we organise um, the departmental staff? Yes, that is directly and only in his wheelhouse, and he has got influence over that. But when you're talking larger policy, we've got to make a case, and that's why I started with we need evidence. We've got to make a case to all of Cabinet, which means um, all the ministers around the table have to understand and agree to what the decision forward would be, not just Murray and uh, Minister Watt, I should say. And I believe that um, in a lot of circumstances, 
there's been election promises made or um, election uh, or announcements made that um, he himself intrinsically knows that we would be opposed to, but he's having to do his job, and that is um, uh, be a part of the the larger um, uh, caucus. Mm. So I just we're talking about advocacy. Like I think advocacy is it's about talking, it's about relationships and pushing stuff forward bit by bit. It's never big jumps. It's step by step, little bites. There's a lot of people in Australian agriculture that I see um, a lot of, more, more so on social media looking towards Europe and all of the, you know, taking the tractors to parliament, you know, spreading some shit on the uh, manure on the steps of parliament, that type of thing. So we're seeing a lot, a lot more of that sort of talk, and in Europe, it's obviously become a fairly big thing. I'm sort of personally of the view that that doesn't really elicit much change, and it really damages the relationship that agriculture has with the general population. Uh, what's, what's your views on that? Like on this sort of view that we should be going down that route. Well, funnily enough, uh, Andrew, I had a privilege of doing a Nuffield scholarship about 2007, and I looked at that exact issue of how did farmers influence the industry and uh, i always say that i um i uh, went to the u.s to to understand how the lobbying works that um the hand behind the hand conversations um i went to uh france to learn how to burn tractors um <laughs> on the street and then i went to the ukraine to learn how to bribe people and these are the <laughs> this is the diversity of how you can get something achieved and then obviously has consequences so, so, for that. So, so David, are you concentrating on the bribery? Because yeah. oh. <laughs> um, is, is that is that why I got? So that's why I got this free T-shirt. Yeah, that free T-shirt and the. Uh, I was the, really uh, I was really cheap. <laughs> um, <laughs> and bribery can come in many different forms, of course, as well. But um, no, the, the reality is the longest term outcome for everybody is when it's a great vision position and that's where i guess that advocacy part is is why we do it the way we do because a bribe only lasts for as long as the cash is there the protest only it affects the consumers if they're actually on board with the message they can you can actually go the other way and piss them off so much that they go oh, well what you, you've actually stuffed my day up why, you, why you, i'll use the example you? david uh remember 2019 pre-covid it was when Melbourne was shut down multiple times by vegan protesters. Oh, uh, yeah. The, was, it that, the, oh, was it vegan or was it that? Um, oh, no, it was, it was like an environmental protest. No, nah, no, nah, well, there were separate, yeah. separate ones, but there were specific vegan ones that shut down Melbourne. Because remember, they shut down the abattoir at Bacchus Marsh as well. Mm. And so all the roads were closed and it caused deadlock and everyone was late for work. That didn't create any support for veganism, it did the opposite. And so I think that's where if we start thinking that we can go down the streets of Melbourne and shut down the streets that will get support. We'll not get support. We'll lose support in my view. If, if you're going to make a protest or disrupt other people, you've got to make sure that they understand your message and that they are, that they are sympathetic to that message as well. So and this is interesting in, in Australia politics and in, in Australia psyche. We've never been hungry. We only during COVID did we discover that um, there was a supply chain of food and toilet paper. Um, and only during those periods, uh, and, and with the cost of living now, we rediscovered um, uh, that, that there are points and pressure points for consumers to both um, production systems. That's why we have alternatives. But then also um, while we're having a discussion around how do we get more efficiencies in the supply chain that will hopefully alleviate that. 
But those conversations don't arrive unless there's pain or pressure or or passion around that from the wider community. And so for us, when we talk about Keep Farmers Farming campaign, coming back to the original question, it's as much of explaining it to the community why we're frustrated. Hopefully that then puts pressure um, on the whole of government so that they take notice and go, okay, yes, there is an issue here that we can't just get a silver bullet for. There's some major reform needed. Um, and out of that, that's where you get real change by the whole community. If you just have that one single once-off protest, yes, it can, it can people can feel pain. But in the media cycle, and especially now with the rapid 24-hour turnover, um, that little blip will be replaced by um, another event or something that that isn't um, that will sustain a, a longer presence. So it needs to be a campaign mentality. It needs to be crescendoed with public support, um, and the public itself want to to actually get behind it because they understand the issue. So there's a few things that I feel like in Europe has occurred, and therefore mm. they're able to get more traction. And in Australia, we may go that way if we continue to build this pressure and understanding. But a once-off protest um, won't achieve that. It, it is actually more in, ingrained into their psyches, both as a community to to understand the issue, but then also um, not turning them off that issue as well by having that once-off uh, event. I think I think by uh, by explaining to the consumer that making it easy for farmers has a beneficial flow-on effect to making the cost of living cheaper, like. As long as farmers are making a profit and cover their costs and make a profit, produce a lot, it can flow through to cheaper produce for consumers. And that's a sort of like game theory, sort of everyone wins. But I guess this is where it sort of comes into it is at the moment, you've got a farmer, look at lamb as an example, in sort of November, October, lamb was dirt cheap, but at supermarket, it was still the same price. And so I guess that's my next question was this ACCC investigation into the supermarkets. Is that something that would be supported by, like I can imagine consumers supporting that, farmers supporting that, then finding a middle ground? Oh, well, we have come out and supported the ACCC because it's the, the one agency that actually have, has gravitas in its name. It needs more teeth. It does need more resources, but this is what it was built there and that's what it should be doing. So um, giving it powers on the back end of this to go, what? If the ACCC needs to do more of this, give them the authority to have what we call a Section 95, which is the authority to draw people and call people essentially like a court yep. to, to give evidence and provide information that they legally must do. At the moment, um, they don't have that authority. They don't have that power. And and they also don't have um, any ability to have a big stick. So a demerger um, uh, act or something like that that gives them the ability to a go bit well, of teeth, a bit of teeth, yeah. But, yeah, but, I, guess, of but, but I guess that's a, they do an investigation, do the report, then it's up to the government to say, right, we've got an issue of monopoly, they need to get rid of Dan Murphy's or whatever it may be. That's ACCC might not have the ability to do it, but they've got the ability to recommend. Well, anybody who's been around understands too that the recommendation has to be taken up by government. And mm -hmm. if sometimes, if it's a, a little bit more challenging and a little bit harder, um, and they they might have some economic pain involved involved with it, um, governments tend to shy away from those reforms. Mm -hmm. um, and unless there's once again that groundswell behind it um, by next week or uh, by a certain amount of time, they hope. Well, not they, but 
it could blow over and that issue is no longer as pertinent. And then, then those recommendations are either reported on or or held up to, to for any accountability. So by giving an, an agency like that uh, the stick and taking it away from the politics and just sticking with the policy, um, if they've done something wrong, there's a consequence. That gives you more authority. That's why we have... Uh, that's why there's no politics in 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 the law, and essentially that's what we want the ACCC to be able to have that authority. Mm. And also, noting too, this discussion so far has been at the retail end. There's a whole supply chain, and even to the fact of simple things like the cost of power and roads, that has a huge effect on on how we operate our businesses. And look at the Ad Blue scenario we found ourselves in a little while ago. These are scenarios mm. that, that that affect how farmers operate, and they are an issue that can be fixed by getting the policy right. Before we, we go, because I wanted to ask a question before we go too far away from the, the discussion around the style or the approach that NFF are now taking, because it's I'd describe it, I guess, as a bit more direct or a bit more adversarial in terms of the the way, you know, the, that you're working now. Um, is that, and obviously that's, that's trickier to navigate you know, because the government would probably prefer a different approach potentially. But what about, have you had much feedback from from kind of farmers or, you know, NFF members or, or other stakeholders about what... Sponsors? You know, or... Yeah. Have they, have, are they all on board? Are they happy that the NFF are having a bit more of a robust approach? Um, there's, there's a spectrum there. Some people believe that we're going too hard. Others are going, well, you're actually only just starting to do what we've asked you to. You should go harder. So... With that uh, pendulum, um, I think we're okay. We're, 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 if I only heard one side of that story, I'd be concerned. If yeah. we've got both sides, I think we're we're okay in that in that middle space. Um, essentially, we haven't said anything that hasn't been already uh, documented. We can always point to a press release up to three to five years ago, but we haven't been as um, I guess put as much pressure on those points. And that's mm. all, all we're really doing now is being a lot more dogged not just sweeping down the carpet putting the press release out and not mentioning it again now it's front and center and we've actually run campaigns and this is the first time we've actually had a campaign style for a very long time but out of that too and i must keep saying we talk the government we don't say the minister or the department yeah. we always say the government because we actually know that these bigger issues aren't down to one minister they're actually to the parliamentary um caucus itself so yes i guess we've We've ratcheted that up. Absolutely, we have. Yes, there's been concerns by some people. Yes, there's been cheering by others. And um, look, the amount of phone calls I get in a day is sometimes absolutely blistering. And um, I get direct feedback by my friends, my neighbours, by strangers <laughs> a lot. And um, you get a bit of a feel for um, if you're on the right track and the right track is we're putting the farmer voice and we've always framed it as that's why the name farmers are both in the organization, but also in the campaign. That's what they actually want to see. It doesn't really, the, the style um, is definitely changed, but it always comes back to you. As long as you're putting up a fight for the farmer, the, the actual person that we're, we're here for the organization, they actually care about that name as much of the, the style that we do use on the farmer end. But then on the, um, the political end, I guess, um, it is about relationships, as as we mentioned earlier. And that is something that um, uh, is 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 a challenge in these scenarios because um, people do take these things personally and politics can be personal. But we're not trying to make it personal. We're trying to focus on 
this we're, we're arguing against this policy. The policy is the part that we have trouble with. But people who are in those roles, they they do. Um, it is hard to to separate yourself from that sometimes, and we've mm. been very mindful of of that within the whole um, keep farmers farming campaign. I was going to go on a on a side tangent there. You mentioned the emissions uh, thing that's coming. Is that the thing with the Utes? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So just I actually I I only saw like a, a tweet about it, but I didn't actually read it anymore. But give us a quick what what is the goal with that? Um, it's been proposed that. By 1st of January 2026, you can only buy uh, Euro 6 engines in any um, vehicle, which then would mean that a lot of, well, almost every four-wheel drive utility that we use on farms, you wouldn't be able to purchase any of the current models. And our concern is is there's no equivalent um, in horsepower and torque um, and also price that would fill that space. Now, it's a great aspiration, and we want to be more energy efficient, but you can't do it by cutting the legs out of probably the most important tool on a farm, which is and and, and for tradies as well. Yeah, and for tradies, which is so, why we've also again supporting other sectors. So does that mean that you obviously can buy existing ones and they can be traded, but not yep. new ones? Um, by by the end of essentially next year, um, they want to phase out all the utes that we currently have on the market, which. By the way, Australia is a very small segment on a very large um, automotive industry, and we have more distance than a lot of areas to cover. Mm. We need really, if you have dual fuel, um, so if I have to start supplying, and and these these new engines would be mainly based around a petrol engine, not a diesel engine, because you can't get diesel engines to that spec yeah. uh, in that size um, uh, vehicle. Um, so essentially, you'd have to go uh, high-octane petrol to achieve that. Um, all of a sudden you've got to have a whole supply chain that would be able to be fit for purpose, noting too that in most regional areas, diesel is the backbone of what we do and how we operate. That would take a massive supply chain shift as well. So we're not even ready for it, even if it did come in. So I've got, a, tr- I've got a bit of advice then for any of the farmers listening to this podcast. As of the end of next year, you're not going to be able to buy a new ute. So I've got a 2018 Hilux. Low kilometers, perfect condition. It's just been shampooed in and out, been washed, canopy, tree liner. Uh, one of those never, heat, never, heat never, ma- never off road, never off road. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say like 42, but now that I know about this announcement 43 and a half. So, full mm. service history, brand new tires, brand new Pirelli Scorpion tires. So, they're really good ones. So, uh, drop us a line on the podcast. And uh, we'll uh, organise. And uh, and and on a more serious note, on I, that one, I, no. I was quite serious actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Um, th- uh, no, that, I am. <laughs> part of that part of that strategy, though, is it also maybe designed to try and encourage some move to more electric or something? Because, uh, to my knowledge, electric the electric there is no of, electric yet. I know there's not one now. I'm just saying, or even really electric tractors. And, but and elect- if, you, if you take an electric car and then tow anything, yeah, the batteries. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing, isn't it? Right. But but some people that are trying to look to the future might be saying, well, electric might be this because an electric engine has unlimited torque, doesn't it? Um, There's no so, such thing as unlimited in a finite well, universe. 
Okay. All right. Well, maybe my physics knowledge isn't as advanced as yours, Andrew. But, you know, that, that's not a solution either, right? Like diesel's the only real solution. It's not some other technology that's going to come along or even anywhere near ready to be able to replace the diesel side, right? Which is, which is our conversation. If there was um, a, a ute that has, once again, that inversion of amps and, and voltage, if, you, if it can do give us the, 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 the power that's needed and has um, the ability to tow three and a half ton and, and travel for 800 kilometers, that'll be great. But the issue is we don't even have the infrastructure to charge. Um, mm, uh, if, if Australia, uh, down the average street, what I'm told is in a regional area, if you have more than three car charges down a street, that maxes out the capacity of the whole street, let alone every other house that mm. has aspirations to have those type of cars. We just don't simply have the infrastructure in place. So absolutely, once again, we we um, we, are, we are supportive of the aspiration, but let's get some reality behind it. It just isn't going to work. Let's focus on some real issues that will make bigger impact and then work about the um, the more aspirational ones as we go along. And always when we talk about Australia too, we've got to look at it from, I don't know, when I went to, did my economics, Maslow's um, hierarchy, hierarchy of needs. So let's actually get, if we're talking about a housing crisis, all these other aspirational things aren't important. Let's actually solve mm. some fundamental ones and then move back up that hierarchy when and if we have time. So, all right, David, right? I posited one solution there. One thing is that people can buy a Hilux, but I've just solved a lot of agriculture's problems here, right? You say there's no technology that can replace the ute, but sometimes when you're going forward, you have to look backwards. Clyde Styles. Precisely, right? I think emission standards on a horse might knock them out. But it's a two-pronged approach, yeah? One of the things is we're a heavily export-focused... I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> uh, it's a heavily export-denominated marketplace, yeah? The average horse would eat three tons of hay per year. So if we replace all those utes, most of our grain... Most of our hay. A circular economy, you're saying. We'd, we'd, all, be we'd just be basically. Self-sustaining. We'd just be gra growing grain just to feed the horses. So, I can't wait to see that chart in your next um, uh, economic um, forecast, Andrew. I think I might actually do something on horses soon. Uh, it's, a, it, it's, he's going to start his new party called the Amish, Australian Amish <laughs> Party. Uh, he's already got the beard happening. He just needs to get the hat. I just and, need to get rid um, of the moustache. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. I do have a hat, so I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, on a serious note, uh, like it is, it is just another sign of policy that isn't up to speed with the reality. And like I've said before in the podcast, my next car will be an electric car. But I'm not going into rural areas as often as I used to. And like if I'm going to Albury from Canberra, that's fine. If I'm going to Sydney, that's fine. But if I'm going to Mockingbudin or wherever else, or, you know, I'll hire a car for that use for the, for the number of times that I use it. But the electric car is fine for the city. It's fine for those small jaunts, but it's, it's no good for regional areas yet. 20 years time, maybe 10 years time, but getting the infrastructure is the issue. So and they tried it with motorcycles as well. Like the Euro standards, like mine's a Euro five motorcycle until you take the color to converter off, which everyone does. Oh. 
So it, it, it's also it's not just the infrastructure; it's the time it takes to actually charge up. If you're if you've got the infrastructure, but then it's half an hour to you know forty five minutes, half an hour to get a charge on your on your battery pack in your car. Like you imagine if it took um, half an hour to fill your to fill your tank. I'm, with I'm, fuel. A, I'm actually not a, not opposed to that. Like if I'm driving to Melbourne, yeah. No, and, it's rubbish. And, you can't. If I if I got to stop for thirty minutes halfway, yeah. I'm gonna use the gentleman's room. I'm gonna get a burger, get a coffee, stretch my legs, refresh my eyes before I drive. I don't think it's a bad thing. But I would, I would take half an hour in the fuel in the no, station. But if you if you if you get widespread use of electric cars, and then even if the infrastructure is increased, you think about a standard fuel depot now, where you go and you pull up, you fill up your tank, takes you three minutes. And then you go and pay, you grab a thing, you go to the toilet and you're out again. If everyone's there for half an hour, how long is that going to take? What are the queues like if everyone, well, if you got it 70% of electric cars yeah, and they're that, all going half an hour? That's why you need to have more charges. But, up, but, I, the more, but how many more do you need if you're going to sit there for half an hour? You imagine you imagine not, if it took half an hour now to fill up your fuel and normal for, how, how, what would the queues if, be if like? You, if you're driving Canberra to Melbourne eight hours, you should be stopping for half an hour anyway for a safety point of view. It's not. It's not feasible, and I think the system should change where you get. You know how you got those gas bottles that you can swap and go. We need to have like a deck of every electric car should have a standard kit where you can put plug and play a battery pack or whatever, or a number of battery packs. Well, and trying, they sit. They're, they're trying it with the trucks. Well, they should do that. They sit there and they just charge their full straight up. So you roll up, you put your empties in, you take your full ones out, plug them in, and you drive away. That would work. So one of the right? bits of feedback I've heard. Not about us, but about podcasts in general. Is the guests are supposed to be listening? Like the guests are <laughs> once supposed to be doing the speaking, and the hosts are supposed to be listening. And for the last five minutes, we've just yeah, ranted well, about Clydesdale horses, Teslas, and uh, how the world should work. So I'm going to put it back to David. Yes. Uh, there's not much controversial, not much more controversial than live export. What what what's what's the general vibe about this boat coming back from uh, the Red Sea? Well, there's a couple of points in this conversation around um, when a permit is issued, the government has said it meets all the criteria for it to get from A to B, from Australia to the destination. And it was very clear where this boat was headed and also um, w the timing of the boat getting there. Now, the, the circumstances changed when... Um, uh, it had the potential to be threatened by a militant group that was um, definitely picking uh, uh, ships that had uh, affiliation with Israel, which is what uh, the people who chartered this boat. And um, being a an organisation that isn't a member of uh, any of the farming organisations, we we still see it as uh, a, an issue for the the mm. industry to get this right. Even though it's not necessarily one of our own, we are, we're definitely in there making sure that the protocols are right. So if we can get this ship back and demonstrate that processes are, are, are done in the right manner, that we have um, the ability to transport livestock to whatever destination, and at this stage it's, it looks like it could be A to A, mm -hmm. Um if the processes work, the sheep are in good condition, or the livestock in general, because there are some cattle there too. Yeah. Um, if we're able to do that, show the ventilation systems are actually working, that the nutrition's working, that the vets are able to identify uh, any sick animals and quarantine them, that is the system actually working. This is a demonstration 
that we can actually carry out this this opportunity for Australian sheep to be sold in such a manner and have oversight throughout the supply chain. That's what was asked of us, and that's what we're doing. So for me, and that's what I've, can, that's what I've kind of thought about is thought the, the fact that we've returned them shows that the supply chain is working because obviously things happen at sea and things happen during like it could have been fine to send them at the start of january but we saw a big spike in attacks around about that time it was due to get into that region by returning them is a good news story to me on live export because it's saying we identified a risk we brought them home because there could it would have been nothing worse than a live export vessel on fire after a rocket attack and and this is where we've got to make sure we don't allow the politics to get involved in this because we've seen some rattle um, some saber rattling by some politicians to say that this should never have been the case but it's actually on the on the advice of the department that this ship um is being coming back to australia it still needs clear direction we haven't actually got a spokesperson from the department yet to to really take ownership of this scenario because we are relying on that information and and we are working very closely as a whole with the department but we also need some clear directions about what is possible, what is the art of making this happen. And that is the final piece of demonstrating that this trade is a viable trade and it actually operates. So, um, the, that, and that's why you asked me, what the indecision part is is the part that we're working through at the moment, mm. getting some very much clarity. And what we fear is that there's people making opportunity out of this to, to garner um by if if they delay or if they're not being supportive of making the system work appropriately it actually provides evidence for their side of the whatever they they're promoting and that is um the fact that this trade doesn't work but the reality is to date um by following the processes we are actually hitting all the marks that, that we need to so um we do want to make sure that biosecurity is handled seriously and that is probably one of the biggest issues by um by this <laughs> this ship coming back was, and making sure that we don't introduce anything that we shouldn't. If we but can it, demonstrate that as well, it shows that that system works too. I think that's an interesting one because there has been a lot of confusion around the biosecurity. Uh, you know, we've got uh, more of the Western Australian farmers come out saying it's a huge biosecurity risk. But then we've got sort of ALIC saying it's a minimal risk. And I can sort of see both points because the vessel obviously has in the last 90 days, it's been in Malaysia, it's been in Indonesia, it's been all over the place. Um, but before it comes in, it's disinfected. Before it loads, it's disinfected, it's cleaned, it goes through that process. And then those sheep and cattle have got on it. They've been at sea for 27 days now. So the risk is probably minimal. Minimal, minimal, yeah. It would have to be. But, but nonetheless, if we follow the process and whatever, if we can make sure that we've followed the protocol, and if there is any evidence that there's 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 more time needed or more tests needed before they're offloaded, blood tests or what, whatever we need to do to ensure that that risk is as minimal as possible, that's actually a good thing. That actually demonstrates that the investment that we're talking about that needed to happen and that we've got processes in place to prevent things coming into Australia, it is actually working. Well, it's just another demonstration that we've got concerns. We're able to address them with science, which is what we're wanting to base all this conversation on, not hearsay or or um, whimsical um, uh, opinions. We, if we can demonstrate hardcore that we we're able to do this, there is there is nothing that should then be able to change the mind of government that the policy that they once had, just like 
stage three tax reforms can now be overturned and we come back to a stage where this is a legitimate trade. We've met all the benchmarks. We've actually probably done a more better job than what was expected of us because we're able to do something that's not really possible and still have a great outcome. That for us is, is where we want to land. Is part of the um, issue, though, as well, because there are certain protocols with regards to once you go through the registered premises and, and you're on the ship as, an, as a livestock animal, like they're not meant to come the other way back, right? And there are, you know, biosecurity protocols. There is a lot of bureaucracy, I guess, in red tape. So it's not a situation that we've really faced before where where they've been returned, right? Um, is that part of the reason that it's, it's, it's about that inability for the bureaucracy side of it to respond quickly because there's not a precedence there and they don't really know, you know, what to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. This is what you'd call a wicked problem. It's something that we've never really faced before. A management problem is something we've had, we've been able to identify. We've had something similar before, so we, we can do that management problem. But this is a, more of a wicked problem because it's something that we've never faced. But there's this dichotomy, right? Everybody goes, we've got to make sure the welfare of the animals is the highest standard and we've got to make sure we look after that. Awesome. That's our priority. We'll make it happen. But then if we go, well, actually, it's the bureaucracy that we need to make sure every box is ticked and no risk is, is there. Well, that's that's at the other end of the scale of where we need the animal welfare. So somewhere in the middle, once again, it's reducing the risks and making sure we're looking after the animals. That's the sweet spot. And if we've got to um, make some tough decisions as an industry to say, right, we want this to happen. We'll support the minister in, in the actions to make that to make the call and bring the sheep home. Awesome. We'll do that. But there has to be a balance between the two. You can't hide behind one or the other. If you, if you talk animal welfare, then you've got to make sure you can get the sheep home. If you're talking biosecurity, where well, you've got to make sure you look after the animals. There is a sweet spot there. And sometimes, and it feels like in Australia, we get so pedantic about the bureaucracy. We just don't get on with doing the job. And mm. for, for us, we're getting to that stage now in this conversation. So, David, I don't want to keep you too long because you're getting eaten by flies the whole time. <laughs> and then the two of us are indoors, so we, we're quite comfortable. We can sit all day and we'd be happy to sit all day. But uh, I'm thinking more about your sanity. Uh, and we've already probably tested your sanity enough over the past 45 minutes. Uh, just one one last one, yeah? We're, we're, well, we're February now, yeah? What is the biggest challenge you see over the next six months for agriculture in Australia? Uh, it comes back to the economics of farming, and that's in the lens of both the sustainability but also just the inputs. Um, I fear that there's a lot of international turmoil that's um, that farmers in Australia have to absorb. There's no way that we can um, really manage our way out of some scenarios that are coming at us if things continue to play it the way they do. So shipping is is one example. Mm -hmm. uh, China becoming such an important um, trade uh, partner with us, both imports and exports, is is now coming back to the reality. So the lessons that we learned only a few years ago, how are we going to manage that relationship moving forward? And it is a very important one and we need it. But um, this, the economics of farming is getting really hard. Mm. And just like the supply chain of food, we've got to ask ourselves the question, where are all the efficiencies to make us um, as sustainable as possible? That's that's one of the greatest challenges at at the moment, with the building blocks of some decisions that we make now will have a huge effect on on the future prosperity of different regions and different industries. It's a bit of a, or more of a motherhood statement than probably the silver bullet one that you're asking in one regard. But the reality is 
there are so many issues at the moment that will affect that. And we just have to keep asking ourselves the question, what are we trying to achieve? And that is, um, in a simple nut case, in a simple, uh, sorry, phrase is um, uh, keep farmers farming. And that means making them the best businesses as possible to produce the highest quality food as possible and give consumers value. And value means you're not going to get sick. You're going to get quality. You're going to buy it at the price that, that fits best the, that standard that we're delivering. And for some products, it's going to be means that we stay the same price. Other products may hopefully be, make it cheaper, but we can't continue the way we are. And that, that goes through the whole funding system. That goes through the priorities of government. And once again, I come back to the to the hierarchy of needs. Are we achieving the, the bottom of that pyramid? Are we actually knocking off the key issues before we're elevating um, other social issues that aren't necessarily addressing the key points of running a sustainable economy? Good answer. Good point. Yeah, good point. To, good point to probably wrap it up. Like you said, you, you've um, you, you're already out doing a bit of uh, farming in your spare time now. When you're not president, you're going to still run a farm. So we've taken up a bit of your time. Uh, you know, when it's a good day to be out there doing some uh, productive work on farms. So we might kind of wrap it up there. I think, um, Dave. Thanks for thanks for making the time. We'll probably try and get you back again in another yeah you know, quarter. Yeah, and just just to get an update of how things are tracking and um, and see if there's any kind of there's always going to be something coming along that's going to be interesting to talk about. I think in this agricultural space, I think that's that is the thing. There's always something in agriculture. There's always going to be something to talk about. It's a growing industry, mate. Yeah, that's Very good. Good pun. good pun. All right, yeah, that's great. Okay. All right. No, thanks. Thanks for coming on, Dave. We will see you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for thanks, Ed Waters. <laughs>